of the MSC and the Space Healthcare. Um, and I'm delighted to introduce, although he probably doesn't need any introduction at all, um, Professor Carl Hennigan, who is the Director for the Centre of Open Space Medicine. And he's going to talk tonight on 10 components of effective clinical epidemiology and how to get Thanks, Claire. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Well, I put this slide up just because um, what I do now is to make your life easier. If you go to the CBM site, you go to the top blog now, you can pick this up. It's got the PDF of the talk, and then it'll also have the podcast of the talk up when we process it. So it's a way, and it's just got a summary there, so you can get all of the components of this talk available there. Okay, so I've changed it to 10 components because it's still not a finished talk yet. I started with top tips, and now it's components, and I'll probably change it again in some way. But it's a talk about clinical epidemiology, which some of you are on the intro to research methods, about one of the hardest components is about how do you get started. And I'm going to go through ten components. Feel free to interrupt. Say what you think. I'm okay with disagreement, but remember you're being recorded. Well, I'm being recorded. Okay. So number one, you've got to start with a problem, haven't you? You've got to start somewhere. So I'm taking you on a journey back to 2004 on a little bit of information about a project that we've now been working on for 10 years, and it's around chronic diseases. And this is a slide I looked at about 10, 12 years ago about a problem that interested me. And this is the rise in non-communicable disease, if you like, chronic diseases. You go from 1972, look at the proportion of people reporting a chronic disease from 21% right up to 35%. And not only that, when you look at that, you see that actually it's for people of all ages, across all ages. It's not just the elderly. You can go down here and pick out children 0 to 4 years old and look at the line. And as you go up, in fact, it's pretty much across the board we've had an increase in chronic diseases. And then I saw this slide. And this is a slide that comes from the Department of Health. And when you think of chronic diseases, you think of the management. And each clock represents a day in the management of somebody's chronic disease. The little white ones represent the clocks where some interaction with the health service may occur, and the red one represents the interaction with a doctor. And when you think of it that way, you start to think, well, that's ridiculous, isn't it? Actually, that is a component where you think, how can anybody have an impact in that smaller time on all of that time period when somebody has a chronic disease? And that's the problem that started to make me think, oh, what's the issue here? So the first bit you've got to focus on when you're all starting is you have to start on a problem that really interests you and shakes you up in a way. And this is a fundamental issue because most ineffective people in applied health research, in clinical epidemiology, start out on a problem that they don't quite believe in and don't quite understand why they're doing it. And about two years into the project, they drift off and then start to do something else and go to a new project. Because at some point in the middle of this project, it will get hard work, there may be no funding, and I'll show you examples of that. People might tell you what you're doing is reject your work, and you'll feel completely dejected and miserable. And then you have to revisit, well, I thought this was a good idea at the beginning, and it's still a good idea ten years later. And it's still important. So the number one is, you have to think about the problem more than you think, and it has to be important and relevant at the outset. So, going back to 2004, I started 
or we started with a very simple little grant from the Scientific Foundation Board of the Royal College of General Practitioners, <coughs> about £7,000. And at that point, we decided to do what is the impact of self-monitoring in chronic disease management, a systematic overview of the field. And so that's my point too, in fact. Systematic overviews of the field. Whatever you're doing, you have to be in a place where you understand what's going on and what's happened already. And if you don't do that, then at some point, you're going to come into a project about halfway through and you're going to think, oh, somebody's already done that. Or we already knew that. In effect, any project starts with what we know and what we don't know. And so if you don't have some overview of the field in some systematic way, it's not a systematic review, it's an overview that in some systematic way, how are you going to know what's been going on? <coughs> so in doing that, we developed, this is going back just 10 or 11 years, this is an extraction sheet that I still got in Excel, which details all of the studies and details all of the components, what them components were. This is an extraction sheet that tries to pull out which studies had the components. And then over here, it picks out green and red, what's positive, what's not. And this is me going systematically through every study, extracting the components. Do come in, Jeff. Extracting the components, trying to say what actually is happening in this field. Again, trying to get an understanding. And in doing that, one of the things we noticed, we found you find gaps in the research and in the literature. You find studies and you think, well, there are randomised trials here. Nobody's done a systematic review. So having some way of systematic overview is an important step, and I put that number two. And if you don't consider that, this is a, a DPhil student of mine who got a DPhil last year called Marcy McCormack-Bain, who did uh, use complex intervention theory from the MRC to develop a yoga intervention in cancer patients. And she published a systematic overview, an overview of systematic reviews. And in doing that, I, I emailed her recently. This is what you can look at on Google Scholar, and you can see it's been cited about 25 times already. If you had a H-index of 25, that you've got 25 publications with 25 citations, you'd be on your way to be an associate professor. In most universities, you'd be a professor. So by having a systematic overview, people think it's really relevant. And so we do this all the time. Here's one, another student of mine who's working with us, Nick Brovovitz, has just published the protocol for an overview of systematic reviews of interventions to reduce hospital admissions. Because when I ask anybody, they say, we're going to reduce hospital admissions, I go, OK, what are you going to do? What's your top three interventions? Then they go blank on me. And, I, and if you ask me that question, I don't know the answer too. So that's why we're doing this piece of work. So number two is an overview of the field. Now, remember, you went back to, and some of you are on your intro to research study. If you're in the EBM world, you get drilled into you about the PICO. And in doing the PICO, defining the question. This is the fundamental, hardest bit of any research project. This is the intellectual property that defines you as an academic or as an effective clinical epidemiology researcher. It is not straightforward to define a good research question. It might seem it, but actually the people who make you feel really anxious are the ones who are always going, can you just go over that question a bit more? I don't quite understand it. Why is it important? So you've got to learn the skills of defining a question. So here you go, foreground question. 
that we asked out of that systematic overview in patients on oral anticoagulations, does self-testing compared to usual care reduce thrombosis? That's the PICO. Now, there are seven types of questions out there that really apply. And they all can fit the PICO, if you like, by taking bits in and out of the PICO. How common is the problem? It's a prevalence. Actually, that's a really important question. Is early detection worthwhile? That's a screening. Is the diagnostic test accurate? Diagnostic. And then you move into what will happen if we do nothing? Believe it or not, we've had some really impact questions from saying what will happen if we do nothing. Most of the world of clinicians know very little if, oh, you've got a sprained ankle. And if I go, well, how long will you have to wait until that actually is, gets better? Most people will have some figure between about two and two months. Is that fair enough, Julian? Are you nodding your head there? Does that matter? Well, it does matter. Why does it matter? Because if you say two weeks and somebody's not better, they're going to represent a clinician going, I'm not better. Then what do we do? We start to intervene. And we try and give them treatments that have no evidence. So actually, we've had lots of uh, interest about doing studies just about prognosis. What's the prognosis of acute cough? What's the prognosis of influenza? What's the prognosis of sore throat symptoms? Great questions. And then you get into the interventions. Does the intervention help? What are the common harms of the intervention? What are the rare harms? But one of the key bits about your question is, how do you make it relevant and important? And this is helpful. Um, this is called the finer criteria. Uh, I'll come up. And I like the finer criteria because you just think about the question. Is it feasible? So anybody can have a great question, but if you need £100 million to answer it, you're on the wrong programme. And you're going to have to wait about 20 years till you really know what you're doing, and then somebody will invest in you. So it has to be feasible. Happy with that? Then second, it has to be interesting. It has to be interesting to you, to the population you're interested in, to policy, to practice. It can be a wealth of people, but it has to be interesting in some way. It has to be novel. Going back to the overview, if it's been done before, you can answer the same question in some way, but you have to find some different way of looking at that question. Ethical, you have to think of that in the issue, but then also, is it relevant? And being relevant to policy, to healthcare, is how you develop impact. So the question I always get with students who are with me, if we sat down again in five years' time, what would be different? And if you can't define something that's going to be different about the question you're going to ask, then why bother? Go back to the drawing board. Because that means it's not feasible. It means it's likely to not be interesting and it's not going to be relevant. So the finer criteria is quite a nice way of thinking about the question you're looking at and thinking, how do I get round and think about this? Okay. Number four, then, moving on. From the overview, said I've got a question. All research should start and end with a systematic review, which is a bit odd, really, isn't it? You're ending where you're starting. It's a circular. But actually, if you're going to make a difference, at some point it's going to get into policy where somebody is going to want to say, we're going to look for the systematic reviews. Now... When we started with a systematic review, and here's the Cochrane Library in 2006, which we uh, found a protocol. Um, I'll just go back to this. When we were doing our search, we noticed on the Cochrane Library there was a protocol there that had been sat there for four years and nobody had done anything about it. And there were about seven or eight trials, randomised trials of (coughs) self-monitoring and thrombosis. So I wrote to the authors and said, are you going to do this? 
because we think we could do it. And they sort of faffed around a bit and said, well, we've been trying for many years. We'd like some help. So I said, well, all right, we'll help you. Um, it turns out that chap who I contacted is now a DPhil student of mine on the part-time DPhil program uh, with Rafael Pereira as well, and he's doing a DPhil about optimal information size. But he still works on this with us, and it's been a great collaboration. And I'll come back to collaboration. But if you go to any of the big major funders, any of the major funders like the NIHR, the MRC, will always have this statement. We will only fund primary research where the proposed research is informed by a review of the existing evidence. That's the same for the MRC. If you publish a randomised trial in The Lancet, they will say to you, could, you, could you integrate this with the findings of the systematic review? That exists. And we want you to talk about the findings in terms of the review. So wherever you go, you have to have the skills or know about the systematic reviews that have been done. And so this is what we published in 2006. We published this first ever self-monitoring of oral anticoagulation, a systematic review and meta-analysis in The Lancet, one of the top journals in the world. So obviously we got some bits of it right in terms of impact. And this is what we found. This is the systematic review of thrombotic events, showing a 55% reduction in the endpoint from about 14 trials. In addition to that, what was also important, why they really liked it, we had this significant effect in death at the time, although it was a small number of events, it was just reach significance. So, by self-monitoring, you could halve the rates of thrombotic events, and you could reduce your rates of death by about 39%, that's impact, that's important. That's ten year, nine years ago now. Well, ten years ago, 2016. And I'll come back to this. Okay, now in doing this, and I've, I've left this here, you can take a copy of this, it exists on the, um, on the website as well. And I'll be doing this tomorrow with uh, another group of students, but you can do this on yourself. Um, it's about important to know, to know about your skill gaps, isn't it? How can you start on a, embarking on a journey if you don't recognise what skills you require at the outset? And one of the things I talk about in skills, I get people to rate themselves, and you can rate themselves here for a systematic review. For instance, in systematic review, it'll start with protocol, development, literature search, development of inclusion criteria, data abstraction, grade, analysis, revman, use of data for optional analysis. You go on and on, but there are about 15 or 20 core skills for every study methods and all in there, quality, so you can take a copy of that at the end, but not. But what I want you to think about is when you're doing a skill, you've either got a one, when somebody says something in the room, like stator, you go, oh my god, I've got no idea. Yeah? If you rate yourself as a one and you're doing a project, you're in trouble. But what you can't do is rate yourself as a five and everything can teach the skill. Because that would be unfeasible, wouldn't it? You can't teach everything. So when you're doing a project, what do you think we do? I try and accumulate a team of people who have skills of three, four, five, where they can undertake the skill but will require considerable help. That's okay. And I met somebody today who came to me for systematic reviews because I'm a five. I can teach about systematic reviews. I know more or less mo most of what's going on. And they come as a three and go, but I need some help. So if you want to be involved in clinical epidemiology, you really have to think about your skills. And some of the skills you have to take to five. Because when you're teaching and able to teach these skills, then people will come to you to collaborate based on your skill level. And you end up 
involved in all sorts of publications and impact projects, and you can make a decision about the important ones. Okay? This is important. So, when I think about that, last night when I was doing this talk, I pulled out um, this book. Just one generic skill. There's generic skills in there. And let's just talk about one skill. So I'm going to come to you guys now. I want you to think about one of the most important skills in the generic skills is being able to communicate your research findings, to write about them. There's no use in you doing a great project and then putting it down in paper and somebody looks at me, looks at it, and puts a big red pen through in it going, this is terrible. All right? So I pulled out, this is one of my books, Stephen King on writing. Great book. Anybody own it? Okay. How many, how many people in the room would rate yourself as being able to teach on writing? Five. Let me go back. All right. You, how many would you rate yourself as requiring input only on the most difficult tasks? Four. Okay. Could undertake the skill but would require considerable help? Okay. So there's about half of you. Heard of the skill and would be able to undertake the basics of writing? All right. Never heard of writing. <laughs> All right, you're okay. Right, okay, that's good. You're not, you're probably about right, actually, most people. Now, ask yourself this question. Right. How many books do you own on the skill of writing? Right. I want you to put your hands up. Like zero. Okay? It's about, yeah, about 20%. One book. Okay? Two books. Keep your hands up if you've got two. Three. That's it. So we've got about 25% of you own not one of the, mo mo the, the mode of you and the median is one, and the outliers are two. Okay? This is not the books in my room. This is just in my office downstairs in our basement where I sit, work, and while away. So I've got Stephen King on writing. Fantastic book. Really do like it. The New Oxford Guide to Writing by Thomas Kane. Very good book. Lots to learn something from that. How to Write a Thesis. I had that when I did my DPhil thesis by Rowena Money. Gwyn's Grammar. Very good. I like that one. Writing of Good English. Really like this book. Elements of Eloquence. How to Turn the Perfect English Praise. It's really interesting. Talks about things like alliteration, all sorts of things that great writers use and crap writers never use. And all the people with none and one books never use, and probably two. Everyday Grammar by Oxford, very good for just revisiting the sort of basics. Collins, Improve Your Writing Skills. Successful Sign Writing by Matthews and Matthews, that's a great book. Really like that book, lots of good structure in that. And finally, the book that I tell everybody that you must have a copy of is Strunk and White, The Elements and Style. And that's what my list looks like. And I think I could probably teach writing now as a five. When I was in your position, I would have been a two. Because I recognise it's a really important skill. I write about 100 articles a year. About 40 of them are papers with people. About 40 blogs a year. I just write news articles, all sorts of articles. But it's a, such a skill, and that's a great example of where you can highlight to people and go, well, either you're bloody brilliant, or you're missing out on some opportunity where you've got to think of, I've really got to upskill myself. Okay. Knowledge, skills gap, really important. Okay? Six. Okay, when we did the project, when you do one project, it's really interesting to me. Some people do a project, and then they flip to something else completely over there. They don't think about, well, I've just done this question. I've just done this systematic review. What are the further questions 
that relate to my project. And in doing that, if you sit around as a group of people, you can really start to have a dynamic interaction with people where you can go, hey, hold on a minute, this is really interesting. What research questions? So just from our systematic review, we had four important questions. Which subgroups benefit from self-monitoring? Can you replicate trial results in practice? How useful is timing range as a predictor of adverse events? One of the methodological uh, issues within measuring warfarin and anticoagulation. And then four, can we predict successful self-monitoring of anticoagulation at the outset? And we decided to do something about them. So we did this piece. This is a subgroup's benefit from self-monitoring and... Two reports were made from Oxford, UK, providing data on a meta-analysis of published data. We presented our published data, and then we called trialists to collaborate in an individual patient data analysis. So we moved the field on, and that allowed us to answer more questions within the piece of work. We looked for methodological issues. And here's a good example. Uh, I did this with a colleague who was in Oxford at the time, Paul Glazew. This is going back to 2008. What is missing from description of treatment in trials and reviews? It became obvious to us over a period of time that when you read a published article, even if it showed something positive, that actually you read the journal publication. You couldn't actually do it, particularly if it was a non-drug. But same for drug intervention. You look at it and go, I want to do this tomorrow in practice. Can't do it. So we took a bunch of trials over a year and systematic reviews and looked at them and said, how often can you replicate this in practice? And actually, it was pretty miserable. It was about 1 in 10, about 10% of the time. Interestingly, even the systematic review that I did, that had been included in the cohort, couldn't be replicated in practice. And this item, this paper, has led and is now in the consort statement. If you go to consort, there will be one of the statements, I can't remember the number, it might be about 7 or 8, about the intervention, is directly from this paper, can you replicate, is there sufficient information in the reported paper to be able to replicate the intervention? Done. Here's another one we're doing right now. I just put this one up. This is a bit of fun. Methods, this is about methods. This is Ben Goldacre's leading this. It's called the Compare Project. What happened is just about three or four months ago, we had some medical student turn up and say, I'd quite like to do something with you. And I said, well, is there more than one of you? And he said, yeah, there is, actually. I said, if you can mobilise about five people, we'll do something interesting. And Ben Goldacre, we met. And what he's doing is uh, consecutive trials published in the top five journals. You take the publication and compare it to the trial entry registry or the protocol published before the trial starts. And notice the changes... And when the changes are discrepant between the paper and the trial, is we wrote a letter to the journal. And you've got to do that within two weeks, otherwise it won't get published. So this has been a right pain in the backside. And you can see we've checked 66 trials to date. Nine of them were perfect. 355 pre-specified outcomes were not reported. And 336 new outcomes have been added to the papers. It's quite interesting, isn't it, in finding. You think about... This will be big news when we write this up and think about it. It's just because it's an important issue. It's an important question. Again, it's a pain in the backside because it's a lot of work. Why we're involved in it is because we think it's an important question. And at point one, right at the outset, we went for that. Do come in. Right at the outset, we thought this was a priority. People have been writing on Twitter, who's funding this? And we've gone, well, actually, nobody's funding it. It's five medical <laughs> students 
free doctors and nobody gives a penny to it and there's no funding whatsoever for anybody's time. And it's just something we think is important. So methods are important. Here's another one. So here's an uh, interesting, looking at this, another of the questions we looked at. How useful is timing range as a predictor of adverse events? When you take warfarin, you have a measure called INR that measures a therapeutic window of you being in the right window, which is an INR for atrial fibrillation of, say, two to three. So you can have a percentage time over a year in range. That could be 50%, 60%, 70%, 80%. Nobody had ever said to me, well, why do we bother? Because they always got a therapeutic range of 70%, and I was like, so what? So there's always a so what factor, like I said at the beginning, where you start in your research. So looking at simple questions like this, and again, this has been, ooh, we're right up there. This was a Chinese student who was with us at the time, Yi Wan, and this has been cited about 240 times, which we're now getting up into the big world, for a very simple question, because I couldn't understand why we measure it if there's no relationship to an outcome. We showed that for about every 10% change in the time in therapeutic range, that equates to about one stroke. So if you go from 60 to 70%, you can get rid of about one stroke per 100 patients. Most organisations in the UK have a suboptimal timing therapeutic range, and at some point we're going to do something about it. Okay, so we've got seven now, and I'm going to come back and recap, and then we can have a bit of a chat about them. But number eight, look for effects in real-world populations. Okay? And what's happening, you see, is across the board is we started here, and the number of pieces of work, this is a programme grant that went in, got funded, more papers being published here and there. The, the amount of work is growing, isn't it, over time? That's what you really want to do. If you get this right here, this should mush, mushroom out, shouldn't it? If you get it wrong, it'll just go... Right? So again, we're going to come back to the beginning. This is the most important, hardest bit. Getting this right. Now, most people spend so little time on this bit. It's amazing. They tend to do this bit where they react, oh, there's a, there's a research grant next week. I'm going to do something. And I'm like, well, I've been thinking about some of these questions for eight years now, seven or eight years, and we're still not sure what to do. I've got some great research questions, but the, in the final criteria, they're just not feasible. I'm looking for a feasible way to do it. Going back to the COMPARE study, it wasn't feasible until we could find five or six people. Now, I can't fund, we can't fund that five or six people, because suddenly that makes it a £300,000 project coming back. And what we did is a study called the CASM study, Cohort of Antigradical in South Morrison, and I'm about to show at the back there is Alice Thompson, who published these papers. We started these in 2009. And remember I started at the beginning, I said there's going to come a point where you feel like giving up. We put this into the NHR patient benefit scheme, and the reviewers come back and said, I can't see the point of this study whatsoever and I was outraged at that point which is not unusual for me and when I get angry I email myself back with the email I would have sent and then review it when I've calmed down <laughs> but I do not because I still think it's important we do not go away so we could have had the whole project thrown away because some NHR reviewers have no understanding about the importance of healthcare projects and that's okay you just have to accept some people out there don't know what they're doing and are in important positions. That's the way it is. But what we did then is get that funded in 2009, and here's the papers here, and the lead author is in the room at the back there, Alice Thompson, 
and this is a cohort study of anticoagulation self-monitoring. Estimate the current levels of control of adverse events in patients and explore the factors that predict success. This is because you've got people in randomised trials who may be different to the real world, might they? And that's always an interesting question to me. Will we get the same effects outside of the trial setting? Well, this is an interesting um, topic because the meters are not available on the NHS, but the test strips are. So there's no real way you can study it in healthcare where people can just make it up at the beginning and then decide whether they want to come in the NHS or not. And that seems a slightly absurd situation that we've developed, but there are no other areas normally in, say, blood glucose. You can buy the, the machines or they're prescribed. They're about five or six pounds, whereas here they're 400 pounds. So we also thought there'd be a, an issue of inequity that would occur. We did a prospective cohort study in the UK and we included adults over the 18 and they had to be registered with a GP and as I say, the main outcomes were still self-monitoring. Could actually, what proportion could achieve self-monitoring, had not experienced adverse events, and had achieved greater than 80% of the time in therapeutic range, which is better than the trials, in effect. So we were saying outside of it, we want a better outcome than the trials. And here's what the results look like. We followed 300 patients for a year. The, you can see there's a problem immediately. That's what healthcare looks like if you make people pay for it. So we've got another question that could be important. A lot of people were still self-monitoring, 90%, which is a pretty good figure. Mean TTR was 75%, so pretty good. Only a small number of minor adverse events. But again, this is really interesting. Only half the patients received any inpatient patient training at the outset. So half the people just go and buy themselves a machine, start testing for INR, which is a really important test. The consequences are dire, thrombosis or a major bleed, and they'll do it without the GP or the doctors involved about half the time. And what the findings show that even with little training, people on oral anticoagulation therapy can successfully self-monitor and even self-manage their INR. <coughs> So that's the cohort of anticoagulation, the real world population, and we presented them results a few weeks, and they're having an impact. Point nine. Actually, I put this down. Nine is my nine is, um, I think this is difficult when you don't realise the importance of this, but I just typed in, this is, um, I just put into, the, these are all the papers we've done in anticoagulation, and this is if I put Hennigan and Alison Ward in. Alison Ward's the Director of Graduate Studies in our department, and we've worked together, as you've seen, since 2006. We've worked on all these papers. In applied research and clinical epidemiology, it's very difficult to do anything on your own. It's not like being in a lab or a bench work. Even if you're doing a systematic review, if you're going to publish that systematic review, at some point you're going to need a second person to check your data. And people think, I've got people in my back pocket that we can just produce at any moment. It's a collaboration. If I help somebody out over here, you're going to help me out. If a student, one of your co-students helps you out, you help you back. You increase your publication output while you're helping each other out, and you learn skills. And if you really want to get ahead, then you make your friend a statistician. And this is Rafael Pereira, who I've published over 53 papers on PubMed with. We've published 53 papers in the last 10 years together. Because as a statistician, in an applied bits, he's got some four and five skills that I've not got. And I'm okay with that. I could spend 
a year with the stats team and become a 4-5 in these skills, but I choose not to. But that's okay. But in doing that, we have lots of great conversations where I'm thinking about the issues all the time. And we're discussing them. We're often in the pub. But we discuss them because we're really interested in some of the issues. And in doing that, you have an ally or a colleague who you want to work with, who you feel comfortable with, particularly he's not going to run off and nick your ideas. Or We don't care about who's the first or last author. We care about the importance of the project all the time. Is this an interesting... All the other stuff take care of itself, apart from a small proportion of time when you work with people who are in a nightmare. And I can't help you with that. You just have to experience that and think, I'm never going to go there again. But I think this, this, this is an important in the top ten. This is crucial because if you're in a position as well that you've got some good ideas or questions, you have to have somebody. You're going to bounce them off, don't you? I told you it takes the hardest bit is a question. Where do you go to? Who do you talk to? I just want to talk to you about this latest piece of research. What do you think? And if they say, oh, I don't get it, it's boring. Why bother? You've got to go back to the drawing board and think it through. All right. And my final one is you've got to get organised. Yeah? And I think I put this in, I like this one on McKinsey. This is McKinsey's. You can use whatever strategy you want. There are no right and wrong strategies to getting organised, are there? But it takes two things interpersonal skills and a sort of focus. And you can think about whatever you want. But in being organised, you have to be able to get on with people, you have to talk to people. And I know you're not a one in talk. You do know what that is, but you have to be able to talk. My job in a team is to be able to work with people, assist. We have to motivate each other. We have to keep going when it's, tough, when it's falling apart. But we do this focus, frame, organize, collect, understand, and synthesize is one way of thinking about it. There are no tips that work for everybody in getting organized. So what does it look like? Ten years into it, what does impact look like? And... This is NIHR Signal, published on 21st of August 2015, that the NHS, NICE, Technology Assessment, has finally said, at 10 years, this is a cost-effective intervention at around about £7,000 willingness to pay. New oral anticoagulants come in at around about £25,000 for willingness to pay. And... The estimated number of blood clots would be 2.4% lower at 10 years using self-monitoring compared with standard care. That's 25 people for 1,000. That's not unsubstantial. But actually, we have a lot of interest in the whole idea of self-monitoring and self-care because the current models of care, care are unsustainable. No, we can't afford a general practice, so the world can't afford a general practice system where you decide to say every time you need a measurement, you're going to come in and talk to us. It's actually the completely wrong way to structure a healthcare, but we're sort of bound into it now, and we've got to undo ourselves. So in Oxfordshire, we have about 10,000 people who, who use anticoagulation, and only a handful of use self-monitoring and self-care. This could be a pretty cost-effective way of getting driving people out. Carbon footprint's pretty good. All sorts of downstream interventions and issues. So I wrote the expert commentary. So that's what impact looks like. I talked about the other research we've done and said, what did I say? This technology assessment adds to substantial evidence base that supports self-monitoring and self-management of oral anticoagulation. I could have said we knew this 10 years ago. <laughs> However, 
if you're going to show something beneficial, you have to keep going, don't I? I said that right at the outset. There'll come points where you're going to drop off. To show benefit and change practice takes at least five years. This case, it took ten years, and we're still not there. It's a bit harder, if, easier if it's something harmful. And yes, and, and it's led to this as well. Now we have a collaboration centre with the WHO. They want us to help them understand and interpret how we're going to have a model of self-care for chronic disease in low-resource settings. Because there's no doubt 60% of the global morbidity and mortality is caused by four diseases. Cancer, respiratory disease, cardiovascular disease and diabetes. You put them four together, you've got a huge amount of catastrophe. Yet, everybody in this room has read about Ebola, knows how disastrous that is for you, because actually it's minuscule compared to NCDs. But how do you deliver something as simple as hypertension care in somewhere like Tibet, or Gaza, or an African country where there's no infrastructure? Infection's a lot easier to do. But you're talking about treating people for 10, 20 years, aren't you? But the benefits are potentially huge. So this is really interesting in its own right. Okay, recap. All right, and then we'll take some questions. What's the problem that interests you? Undertake some systematic overview of the field. Define the question. Remember I talked to you about the final criteria? Feasible, interesting, novel, ethical, relevant. Start and end with a systematic review. If it's been done, that's okay. But if you're doing a project and you ever come and put something in, we'll ask, where's that systematic review? Identify the gaps in your skills. You can take this, it's on the website as well, but think about the skills. What are you good at? What do you want to be really good at? To the point you might want to teach it. Develop, in anything you do, think about all the time, what are the further research questions here in this research? Look for some methodological issues and look for effects in real-world populations. Yep. And finally, the bit that's really important that you might want to feel, you've got to develop collaborations. Probably in about 10 years, I'll probably say it takes at least three people, but at the moment it's two. You, know, you can do it with two. Yeah? And then my final bit, and this is the most important bit which I say to everybody, you have to get organised. And every year, I say to myself, I work with a lot of smart people, and I think I'm going to have to get a bit more organised to keep ahead of the game because they're all getting smarter, they know the technology better than me, they have new ways of doing things, they can build a website in five minutes, they can do all this data scraping, and I have to think, gosh, I'm going to get better at this, I'm going to get more organised. And we have to think about how we do that as a strategy. Each of us are different in how we do that. There's no one way that works. You just have to think about it. And on that basis, thank you very much. Yeah. Why do you think people, when you said that, you keep it, and everybody sort of laughed a little bit in a nervous laugh, don't they? It's really interesting. I go into lots of organisations now, and I sit there, and, I, and I, I'm sat there, and I'm going, 
God, I don't really understand what's going on here. Everybody in the room is talking, and it's very complex. And I'm just like, my God. And I, I now realise what's really happening. I, I, I used to think at one point everybody in the room is far more knowledgeable than me. What I've realised now is we're all primed to not admit we have no idea what's going on. <laughs> and actually in the room, everybody is basically making it so complicated that actually they're hoping they won't be found out. But the great thing for me now is I can sit in a massive organisation like the FDA, NICE, WHO, sit there and go, can we just start at the beginning? I don't quite understand the question. I don't understand the outcomes here we're interested in. When we've got that, then we can move on. I don't understand. And people will try and derail projects because they'll come in with something they've read and they'll go, well, I was looking at this and I'm doing a project at the CCG at the moment where we're evaluating a healthcare intervention. And people have tried to make it so complex that it seems like their whole mission is to derail the project. (laughs) And I'll be able to go, well, how does that, what you want to do, help us answer the question? Discuss. And when you go to that keep it simple, that's where it derails. Now, I'm going to come back to the thought process of this because it's really interesting. The whole crux of great academia is to keep it simple. And the best example I can get of that is Einstein. E equals mc squared. That was it. And by bringing all that into very much simplification, everybody could go, we can understand this and apply it. When it's so complicated, it's over here. It might be of interest to mathematicians or to statisticians, but it will be irrelevant to changing everything. And it's exactly the same in healthcare. I work in a lot of projects where what we want to see is a big difference, don't we? Or we want to see a straight line that goes like that. Very simple. And if you do that, so, and come back to the thinking, if it's too difficult or it's too labour-intensive or it's too complex, It might make a difference in your research study, but it won't make a difference to practice. And often people are doing research that's so complicated it's of no value. Does that help in a way? And I do think a lot about keeping it simple. It's the same in writing. If you read Strunk and White, it's actually the most omit needless words. You write about 1,500 words, and then you realise you have to chop it down to 600 words. It's heartbreaking. Because you think, I've spent all this time writing, and then somebody comes along like me and says, oh, there's only 300 relevant words there. Chop it. Get rid of it all. And that's keeping it simple to the point. And I think it is difficult to keep it simple. After about 20 years, I can predict the sort of questions and how you might answer them in a room to help us move forward. That's the problem when you think, oh, God, he's bamboozling me. I have no idea what the answer might be. Yeah. Important point. I mean, just to take that one step further, I, th- I see there are big parallels. I'm a geriatrician, and I see big parallels between what you're describing and in clinical practice, where, uh, particularly in general practice, often the minor changes, minor adjustments, can have a big impact on a person's life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe the OT, maybe the nurse, maybe the relative who actually makes a suggestion. Yeah. And keeping it patient based and practical rather than scientific or technical and sort of professional, very yeah, and geriatrics is a huge area because we showed you the population's getting older, we're increasing. We have a process which I consider is therapeutic inertia sets in, where people do something, they give people treatments, and then nobody changes anything because they're all too scared. Ooh, they're on 18 drugs, I'm not going <coughs> to simplify this regime. And you're right, and then there's processes. What we've got to do is develop interventions that are simple 
make a difference to somebody's life without being labour intensive. Because I get interventions sometimes. They say we're spending £600,000 on a new geriatric intervention to improve the quality of life of people who are in nursing homes. It's going to be an exercise-based intervention or people on the elderly people. And I go, and how many people are you going to go to? 600. And I go, well, why don't you give the people in the control group £1,000? That'll improve the quality of their life, won't it? And people go, you can't do that. And I go, well, look, what are you going to design? It's so complex, it's going to fail. And we would just say we're wasting money all the time on these interventions. And if you get that test, which is, this is not feasible, ditch it. You have to talk to people. It's quite being critical in that way, though. I've realised you have to do it in a subtle way, otherwise people just go, whoa. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. How much of your time does it take and how you go to okay. search a literature because uh, there's massive yeah, 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 that's correct. Yeah, yeah, correct. So there are two, I mean, and in fact, it's getting worse, isn't it? It's getting harder. It's really interesting. It's, it's more difficult to be relevant and impactful now than it was probably 15 years ago because actually there's more and more published each day. But there are two bits. There is an, a component for practice where it's a skill. You have to be asking lots of questions and searching for evidence all the time, and you can do it pretty quick, two minutes. You can get to relevant information really quickly. That's one bit of the skill. The second bit, though, is if you come to doing a systematic review, what you do is you think, well, I can't teach about searching. So what we do, and I've done, is work now. If I put Nia Roberts in there, you'll see we've published about 10 papers with Nia. Because sometimes they'll go, actually, we're just going to get ourselves a relevant person who knows more about searching than me, can actually put it together, deliver it in a file. The key, though, is I still have to be a three or four because I've got to be able to look at the search we develop and go, hmm, that's not quite right. Or she'll come to me sometimes and go, I'm doing this search with Jack over here and it's not quite working. Have you got any ideas about how we can improve it? So you have to develop your skills, but it's not something you can go from, I'm going to do a course tomorrow, and by the end of that, I'll be right. You can make yourself proficient very quickly. So within about five days of a course, you can make yourself proficient. But then it's a lifelong skill, isn't it, of upskilling yourself. So the first bit is quite a big jump, but then the next bit is just a slow progress of practice, practice, keep involved. Yeah, um, <clears throat> you talked about collaboration, which... which um I found very helpful talking to my son mm-hmm. about what I'm doing, and he, he asked me questions. Uh, but in terms of a, a DFIL project, not a five on particular points, but you get to a point in, say, a statistical analysis where you need somebody who is a five yeah. to help you crack that piece. Yeah. Um, how do you deal with that in terms of uh, a DFIL, which is especially something you do yourself? Um, yeah, so that's fine. And then acknowledge the, per- the yeah. person. So there are two different things. Tomorrow I'm doing a something on the MSc in International Health. I don't know if you do this in the course. What we're going to do them is make them, and we might do this, we only thought of this, we're going to make them write a lay summary. So you do that. Now, because I think that's cool, so we're doing the, it's, it's, I nicked it off this module then, that's why we're doing it. <laughs> um, the reason that's helpful is because of just what you've identified. If you can write a really good lay summary and give it to people who know nothing about the area, then they can have a conversation with them, can't they? Do you think this is important? Is it interesting? You can go and give it to some people in the disease area. You know, you might, we've all got people we know 
you might go, oh, you've got diabetes, could you have a look at this? What do you think? So actually, number one would be writing a lay summary. And I think you could do that for every little bit of your project because it helps you understand what you're really doing, as opposed to the scientific abstract, which is a bit like, oh, just set out. Why is this in that lay summary? You would say, this is the background, this is why it's important, these are the outcomes in a lay summary way, and this is how we're going to interpret it and what we might do with this information. So once you've done that, you could do that for every chapter. But you're right, you cannot, the key is in any good, and this is the same for a thesis at master's level, it's, you just have to be clear about what you did and what you didn't do. And I think most people would expect you to be able to go, so what you can't do is turn up to a statistician and go, I've got some data, I'm here, could I give it you, and could you tell me about what it means? They'll be really pissed off with you. But you do need to come up and say, look, I've got some data, I've got it in Stata, which I've done a course in, I've got it organised, and I want to ask these types of questions of this data and could have a discussion about you, about whether I'm doing the right things and what impact and what should it be or what am I missing out on. And that would be okay. Would you agree? Would that be okay in the statistics world? That's how I've done it. And over time, the more times you do that with somebody, then at some point you start to go, oh, I can do that bit myself now. I can do my bit. But there always still comes something. I sit there sometimes and we're doing stuff and I think, oh, yeah. This will take me at least four or five days to get my head around this. And I just think, I haven't got five days, unfortunately, anymore. In the beginning, I did. So I used to really enjoy getting my head around how to use SPSS, how to use R, how to use Stata, how to use all these products. And actually, I spend more of my time now getting my head around programming for websites and blogs for some reason because I'm really interested in how we put the information in that. So I spend my time there probably more now in programming than actually in terms of the databases, but it's a really important point. So you must go, I've identified a gap, I'm going to go and do some of the OUCS courses to get orientated. And then from there, go and do X and Y. But what happens in the projects where it goes badly wrong? So every year we see quite a few theses or a few bits of work where we look at it and we have our examiner's meeting and we go, yeah, this person's rushed it. You can tell. And because they left everything to the end. And suddenly they realised they had a problem like a skill gap or a knowledge gap and they tried to fudge it in some way. And you can just see it in the work. As opposed to people who go, actually I've been working on this and I've still got four or five months, but I've got actually an ability to go to this course over here or this over here, fill the knowledge gap and come back and do a better piece of work. And that's where the get organised comes from. And in doing that, being able to fill them gaps early, it gives you a much better piece of work. So, for instance, writing would be the one where you think, I've done all this three years' work, and I come to the end, and I'm writing up a 50,000-word piece, and this is the first or second article I've wrote in the last two years. You're in deep trouble if you take that approach. Whereas you should be going, actually, I'm going to write something. I'm going to write a blog for Kellogg, or X, or Y, or some piece, or some commentary. I'm going to try and publish my background. So you're getting the skill, you're developing the the core competences, so that when you come to actually do it, you can do a great piece of work. I saw um, a presentation for, uh, from Cambridge University, and uh, they recommend uh, to start writing uh, when we carry out the research, I mean, at the same time. So, uh, according to your 10 components, what is the best moment to start writing? Yeah, so day one. <laughs> It's, it's, it's a very interesting. Uh, 
Jack's doing to start a PhD, haven't you, with us? When did they make you to start writing something? Day one. Day one, what did we do? We did a one, well, 2,000 word essay. Yeah, so I said to him, right, he came in with all these ideas. We sat for about two hours, and I thought, God, we've got a load of ideas here. I've got to get them down on paper. There's only so much in a discussion I can take in, isn't there? And it, so you've got to get it down in paper, and then you've got to start going, okay, let's get rid of some stuff and get it. And, and, so, and as we write in, you're starting to build ideas. So with the people you're talking, if you're managing your supervisor well, you go, I'm going to give him something written, and then we're going to go and discuss it. And in there, I'm going to go, and the way we do it, you go, well, I had, when I was writing this, I realised it was an important question. What do you think? And also I think this has been done before, but this hasn't. What do you think? You're building up the relationship of being able to discuss relevance, aren't you? Feasibility. Now, you take that to the next level. When you get to a certain point, I go, well, let's publish something. Um, if you go to, um, there's a book by Dave, Dave Sackett and Brian Haynes called Basics of Clinical Epidemiology. There's a bit at the back there, which I wrote, read, could have put that in there, about how to write and communicate your research findings. Brian Haynes writes a, big, a good bit, and I know Brian Haynes. He writes, um, actually, I sent a number of pieces to newspapers. I used to write for newspapers for about a year because it's a really good skill. Because you have to simplify your language, keep it simple. You have to get it down. Five, uh, something like 12 words a sentence, five sentences a paragraph. There you've gone. You can build up your eye, and that's 60 words a paragraph. Ten paragraphs, you've got an editorial. So it's structure. Writing's about structure. So when somebody rings me up and says they want a piece for The Guardian or could you write as an editorial, I think, all right, 10 or 12 paragraphs, what's going to be in the paragraphs? What's the structure? What would I write about? And I'll get it wrote. Now, when I started, that would have took me probably about a month. It would now take me a couple of hours to write something sensible. But that's not because somehow within that 10-year period, some, I've just gone, oh, now I've been sat around. It's because of what I said they may have practice, isn't it? It's like a training environment. So I would get yourself and, you know, even having your own blog is good practice. You know, start something up on WordPress now. I found an interesting article. What does it mean? Keep some resource where you, even if you're taking your own notes, writing it out, keep it, write something. Somebody like Stephen King, you see, when you write a novel, he'll write and say, well, actually, Stephen King's mentor um, is to write, I think he writes 1,500 words a day and then stopped, like around 12, 1,500 words. And he starts in the morning and stops, and then comes back the next day and the next day, and that's how he writes a novel in three months. But the thing is, do a little bit each day is better than doing lots all at the end. That's what I'd say. And don't be afraid to have a go, but buy yourself a copy of Strunk and White. Thank you so much. It's been very interesting. Looking at the title, How to Get Started, do you have any advice on how to get completed? Because there's been so much good research which has never been completed. Yeah, well, let's say, let's not, uh, we can talk about all of the research, but let's talk about people I see a lot who work in the field of clinical epidemiology or research or on projects. Being busy is not the problem in the modern world. Everybody I see is doing something. They're at a computer, obviously doing something. But what they don't do is people have a discipline around what they're trying to do as a structure and organised. So if I'm a builder, so I think of it, tell the people like being a builder, if you come to a job as a builder, you know where you're going to be by Friday, don't you? By Friday, the people are arriving with the window, so we've got to get the wall up to this level or in deep trouble. That's where we're going to be. So that's what I continually do, 
is set priority lists where I continue to say, and it's flexible, but I say by Friday, I'm going to have some tangible output on a project that I'm involved in. And I do that, and I talk to people, it's called the, I call it the shelf. You've only got so much on your shelf, so if you put a load of books on your shelf, at some point it'll be full, won't it? And the most important thing is to get the ones off the end. So you can add a new book on your shelf. So whatever you've got on your shelf that is near to completion will get off the shelf. If it's not completed, it stays on there, doesn't it? So whatever you're doing, try and think about where they are in being pushed off the shelf. Because once they're, So if we've got a project this week that can be submitted to a journal but requires half a day's input, that's the one that's going to be prioritised. Because if I get it off the shelf, the new stuff can come on and we can go next week. So that's one of the things I use all the time. And in that, I have a tangible output each week. If you just wait till the research, and this is people here, well, some people in our department will be horrified. If you wait till the end of a wait from a big paper, you could be waiting 10 years. But actually, if you just say, by the end of this week, I'm going to write, I've not got any papers coming out or anything exciting, I'm going to do a 400-word blog on X. Or I'm going to do Y. Or I'm going to investigate one thing or look up something or maybe do the presentation and finish it. So you just have one tangible output that has a metric that you can see, a bit like the building, then it suddenly becomes a lot more fun. Now, you might want to think of once a month when you start. You know, don't go once a week. You might go bananas. But after a bit, you might say, once a month, I'm going to have a tangible output that I can see in the world. And that could be anything. It could be a letter to a journal, it could be an editorial, it could be a commentary, it could be a newspaper piece, it could be a presentation. But it's something you can look at and go, hey, I did something in the world. Now, that's the difference between people being busy and effective, isn't it? And making things finish. And yet, there are loads of people I work with who don't know how to finish things. And I think, maybe I'll come back on this, I think it's a skill gap. There are some people doing research who get anxious that they're going to be found out. And somebody's going to criticise you and say, you did a systematic review, but you missed that paper, and you don't know what you're on about, and you should be thrown in jail. Right now. And you go, oh, maybe I'll just go and redo the search for a few more months, and I'll go back to the beginning. You've got to get away from that. What matters, most of science is imperfect. What matters is you set out a clear method, you enacted that method, and you put the results, and if there's some error in it, you can correct it. So if you didn't miss a paper, I'll go, fantastic. And that happens to us all the time. People go, and we, we've never missed one yet, but they always say you've missed one. Normally doesn't meet the inclusion criteria. But they do, and you have to go, ooh. But if we do make a mistake, we'll correct it. That's what science is about, isn't it? Self-correcting. We've got this problem in the modern world that actually nobody can be wrong. Well, actually, in science, we should argue. So don't be afraid to be wrong, but just be... In what you've done, acknowledge the limitations of what you're doing and what you can do. Which comes back to the beginning in the final criteria, which is the feasibility. You haven't got enough money to make it perfect. And I think that's all right. Yeah? So which bit? Fitting the research around which time? The around the time that, that you have available. 
Yeah, so nobody's, so that's a common thing I have. People always say to me, I've got no time. That's a common one I hear. And I say, well, a number one is you have to reevaluate whether you're in the right game then. The number one criteria for me is, unfortunately, I just enjoy everything in this game because it's so interesting to me. It's insatiable. People come all the time with these great questions, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is, it's happened twice again today. And I, I always say yes, and I should say no. And I've got no time. And the busiest people are always the one people who go to. So you have to really enjoy it and be insatiable about that. In enjoying it, you have to think about, well, what is it I enjoy in this? For me, I just really like working with people. I like it when we have a question, that's a problem, and we have to solve it in some way. And in doing the solution, stuff happens where we find something out, which is really interesting, and then we go for a pint, and we talk about it, and we say, what's next? The end product for me is never as good as the bit in the middle. This is a crucial element. Success is never defined by the 250 papers, the whatever here and here and here. It's always about the bits where you're going, bloody hell, this is really interesting. Aren't we having a fun time? That's one. Two is you have to find the bits within your projects that a research project. People think, well, I'm going to publish a paper in three years' time. We're always thinking about what can we publish by the end of the week in some. Is there some issue here that's really important to me or in this project or is there some methods that I can get more out of what I'm doing? So it's not about creating more time, and this is a crucial element. You have to be more effective with the time you've got available. Yeah? So you do, and this is a barrier for of all, we don't prepare to invest time at the front end for a downstream benefit. So if it turns out you could learn Stata, for instance, as opposed to do your analysis in Excel, you probably think, oh, I'll do it in Excel and I'll carry on. And then you think, but actually, if you put about two days' effort in and learn this, you could probably save yourself 10 days downstream. That's the sort of thinking you should be doing all the time. The writing skill is, I can write now for an article that took me one month in about two hours because of the amount of time I've invested on the journey. So wherever you are, you can't do all this. It's a long journey. It's a 10, 12 years. You have to enjoy yourself. You have to enjoy the process. But whatever you're doing, you have to be more effective in that area. So as you are all coming into postgraduate students, in effect, what I say to people, you are professional students. Aren't you really? You've gone from being an amateur and undergraduate, where you drink lots of beer, you have lots of fun. But actually, when we're undergraduates or at school, we realise we have to get better at our skills. What I said to you is that, get better, more effective, and then think about the bits you really enjoy and go to them. If you enjoy presenting, do it. If you don't enjoy presenting, do some more writing. If you don't enjoy any of that, what bit are you going to do at some point? But if you go down the high street, there's a plaque on the, <coughs> on the high street where it's got Hook and Boyle. Has anybody seen it? You know who Hook is and Boyle? Boyle's law, chemistry? Hook's law, remember all that? Well, Hook was the first ever fellow of the Royal Society. And he was paid to do an experiment every Friday that he had to do to the public. So every, every week, you're like, what are we going to do? Jesus, we're going to present. And on a Friday, I'm going to present it. And there used to have to, had to be a priest there to verify the findings were true. And then they'd write it up. And then they'd go again. And in doing that, he had all these amazing laws like Hook's Law, which is still today. Pressure is inversely volume and all that stuff. But that's a classic example of your job is to be a communicator. It's not to do research. It's to communicate the findings of the research. That's the job. 
If you understand that principle, then you understand why bother. And if you don't like the communication aspect of it, then there are service bits of the job, which are okay, but actually your real job, and in whether that's teaching, presenting, writing, doing radio, talking to your son, if you haven't got anybody you're communicating to, then you're not actually thinking about it. But, so, but enjoy it. Is that all right? Does that sound all right? And don't, don't ask for more time. Be effective with the time you've got available. That's one key component. There are, uh, no, until somebody can slow the spin of the earth down, we only have 24 hours a day, don't we? All right. Maybe we'll have to ask you about Yeah, yeah, I'll do the one. How to get finished. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. I think, I think that was a really good one. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Much.